يا من صليت بكل الأنبياء يا من في قلبك رحمة للناس يا من ألفت قلوبا بالإسلام يا حبيبي يا شافعي يا رسول الله بأمي وأبي فديتك سيدي صلاة وسلام عليك يا نبي حبيبي يا محمد أتيت بالسلام والهدى محمد حبيبي يا محمد يا رحمة للعالمين يا محمد يا من حليت حياتنا بالإيمان يا من بجمالك علمت الإحسان يا من قلوبنا بالقرآن يا حبيبي يا شافعي يا رسول الله بأمي وأبي فديتك سيدي صلاة وسلام عليك يا نبي حبيبي يا محمد أتيت بالسلام Live. How's your camera doing? Uh, it looks fine. Okay. Dr. Sami, Assalamualaikum. Alaikum Assalamu Alhamdulillah. It's a pleasure to see you here in Istanbul. How you been? Great to see you. Alhamdulillah, very well. Alhamdulillah. So for our uh, our listeners that don't know you, you actually you have a very uh, interesting story, mashallah. You, uh, you were a University of South Florida professor teaching computer science, and that was so many years ago. Mm-hmm. And you were also an activist for, uh, for Palestine, for the Palestinian cause. And you're also active on the the political front, fighting for American Muslim rights. And so somehow, somewhere, you had this normal life that ended up having you exiled to Istanbul, where you where you currently reside. And so I want to dig into your story, if that's okay with you. If you have anything you want to dig into, the, any details you want to drop in, feel free to do so. But I want to know how you ended up here and uh, the story that brought you to Istanbul, if you don't mind. If you want to start... With, with where you were born and, and wow. your early childhood? Maybe just a story. few tidbits about that, well, if that's okay. I, I, I was born in Kuwait. Okay. Uh, I'm 64 now, so this was back in 58. And uh, my parents come from Palestine, both from Jaffa, Palestine, which is in the 1948 areas mm-hmm. that were uh, occupied by Israel at the time. And uh, my grandfather, you know, from my mother's side, go all the way back to the time of Umar ibn Khattab. Mm. So that's why their name is Al-Farooqi, their last name, Taj Al-Farooqi. And my father's side goes back uh, perhaps even um, to the time of the uh, <coughs> Saif al-Din Qutuz and the, the Mongols coming. So, oh, wow. so, so over a thousand years. Uh, at any rate, uh, they were both uh, kicked out of Palestine during the 1948 Nakba. Uh, my father ended up in Kuwait working there. That's where I was born. I went to Egypt at the age of eight in 1966 because he was asked by Kuwaiti intelligence to become an informant on other Palestinians he refused so he was also asked so that was second exile he had to go and then I stayed in Egypt for nine years I finished my high school I couldn't get into the college of my choice even though I had the grades because I was Palestinian so I eventually 
went to America studying uh, engineering. This was back in 75. I was 17. I finished my bachelor at the age of 20 and then continued Mashallah. on my master's and PhD, Mashallah. which I finished in 85. And then I went to Tampa uh, teaching computer engineering at the University of South Florida. So quick question. Well, why is it that you couldn't get the degree that you wanted as a Palestinian in Kuwait? You mean in Egypt? Or in Egypt, in yeah. Egypt yeah. Well, <coughs> Egyptians don't treat Palestinians like others. So you go through a different system. I wanted really to go to the College of Medicine. Uh, and I couldn't because uh, they didn't allow any Palestinians that year to go to the, any College of Medicine, even, all, even though I had better grades than my Egyptian friends who all went to the College of Medicine at wow. the time. So my other choice was, which I didn't really favor at the time, which to go to engineering. You know, my father pressured me, so I, okay, I said, okay. But even that, I couldn't get in. Mm. They sent me to some college in, in Alexandria, and of course, I refused to go there. You know, uh, something that unrelated to my interests. So my father said, okay, you can go outside. And basically he paid all his savings for me to go outside. So that's wow. why I was keen on finishing early and getting scholarships. I only had to pay tuition once. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and sure. after that I was on full scholarships because of the grades. So you did your master's, your PhD? Yeah, did my master's degree at NC State. Mm. And then my PhD also in computer, electric and computer engineering. Then I uh, was hired uh, as a professor at the University of South Florida. Nice. And your master's and PhD, they were all computer science related? Well, <coughs> my bachelor was in electrical sciences and, comp and, and uh, electrical engineering. Mm. Uh, and then my master's degree was in communication system, which was electrical engineering. And then my PhD was in computer engineering. Mm. Okay. Mashallah. Mm. And then so along the way, what, what brought you towards Palestinian activism? Well, I mean, since childhood, obviously, Palestine was living in me. Mm. <laughs> it's not like I was coming to it. I mean, it was my life. I mm. mean, you hear these stories from your parents, from your grandparents, from people that you know who are around you. They tell you in full vivid details what happened in 1948, what happened afterwards. Uh, and of course, I grew up at a time when there was uh, great tension within the region you know with the arab-israeli conflict i lived 67 even though i was just nine mm. but i remember every details of it you know what happened on what day and 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 the reaction to it and then the whole uh time it happens afterwards until 1973 i was in egypt so i lived these years also what happened in terms of the preparation in terms of the 1973 wars uh, war and, and, and what happened afterwards and then I was always uh, following what's happening in terms of the different uh, initiatives taking place, mm. how Israel was manipulating the, 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 the situation the, the, the Sadat uh, trip to Jerusalem that mm. I was in the US at the time, it really shook me to the core you know what happened then and then all the things that happened afterwards in terms of Camp David and the capitulation of the Arabs, and after that Oslo, and now the Palestinians gave up, uh, you know, their rights basically for very little, mm. and what happened since. So I, I've been—it's it, been part of my story, part of my life, part of who I am, and part of my outlook on the world. Yeah. Was there also a feeling of of statelessness? The fact that you were living in Kuwait, but you didn't really have Kuwaiti citizenship. The fact that you had to go to Egypt to study, but you couldn't really study what you wanted. Then you came to, the, was there that feeling of statelessness that kept you fighting 
for I mean, Palestinian rights? I don't know if that's why I kept fighting, but I always felt stateless. Indeed, mm. I never felt, unfortunately, a citizen of anything, of anybody, uh, even though um, country to country it's different. Uh, you're more alienated in Kuwait because there is really real separation between the citizens of Kuwait and foreigners. Mm. In Egypt, it wasn't like that, particularly during the Nasser years. Everybody thought I was an Egyptian, mm. but of course, when it comes to the official policy and your right. rights, that's that's a different story. But within society, I, there was really no difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was in high school, and everybody thought I was an Egyptian until very later on when they found out I was Palestinian. Actually, I was in a school that was becoming uh, that became uh, a military school mm. in in high school because of the 1967. So I was wearing military uniform and. And they were training us. Um, I don't know why, but they were just kids, you know, high school uh, kids. And and everybody thought I was an Egyptian, so I was that's how I was treated. Mm. At any rate, um, things changed, of course, in Egypt after the Camp David Accord, where Palestinians became much more discriminated against within society. And that's oh, wow. when I um, I was denied actually the opportunity to go to the college of my choice at the time. Mm. So then you you. You end up trying to build a life in the United States. What was that like for you? <coughs> well, I mean, in the U.S., I didn't feel. Um, I mean, of course, you're always as a foreigner, but y- you feel more rights. You feel more at ease with the system mm-hmm. because the system, obviously, is much freer than other systems. Uh, I had the opportunities, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, they didn't discriminate against me when I had the grades. I was given full scholarship. I didn't have to pay tuition, except for the first year. Uh, when they recognized that I uh, qualified for whatever scholarships or fellowships or assistantship, I always got it. Mm. Uh, when I interviewed, they didn't tell me that you were foreigner or Palestinian. Mm. Uh, you were qualified on the merit. You were hired, and of course, I got my green card. And 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 I was still hoping that. One day I would get citizenship, which I never did because of my activism. I mm. was denied that. So that's when you started seeing the difference in policies. If you right. are somebody that they feel that you're not politically active, you're just contributing to society from their point of view, you're welcome. But once you see that you hold uh, opinions or you hold um, uh, uh, a kind of associations they don't like, then you're, you're certainly going to be a target. And that target, uh, you're going to pay a price for that. And, and, uh, and that's what happened in my mm. case. You know, uh, ever since they didn't like my politics and my associations, uh, I became a target for the, st- uh, for the state. And I didn't know that at the time. But uh, they claim that I've been uh, monitored and surveyed since 1993. Might have been earlier, I don't know. But at least since 1993. And ever since, you know, you could see that uh, the the way you've been treated, the way they were trying to see how they can entrap you or how can they get you um, in, in trouble, uh, the type of investigations they conducted, the type of things they did, which I discovered during my trial, is unbelievable. I mean, it's reported that they spent at least $200 million <laughs> in trying to get me Wow, uh, you know, imprisoned and, and for life. That's insane. It is insane. I mean, when you look at, I mean, the things that I've discovered during my trial, they were absolutely crazy, insane. On the night of the Oklahoma City bombing, mm. which happened in '95, turned out that there was someone actually listening live, 
And at the end of the day, he had a comment on that because every call that they were monitoring, they were summarizing. So I see at the end, he said, I don't think he has anything to do with it. It's crazy that they even thought for a moment that I had something to do with the diplomacy. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane. I mean, that's the kind of mentality uh, that was uh, basically the, the framework that they were that they were having, you know, and trying to follow me. It was just unbelievable. I hear you. I, I want to dig into what And was by the, the way, just yeah, to ahead. see how the media is hand in glove with the government. Mm. Because during that time, I was also targeted by the Tampa Tribune. Mm. If you go to the Tampa Tribune headline on uh, April 21st, remember this happened April 19th, 1995, two days later, even though they identified two white people and they had their, their, their uh, not pictures, but their drawings, you know, somebody right. had. And then they said um, two white guy with crew cut hair or something. On page four of Tampa Tribune, they were pointing uh, 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 towards me. Wow. You know, they were having an article saying that I had I may have something to do with it. Wow. Which is the government at the same time was was looking into. I mean, just imagine mm. how they and of course when, when I was when my house was raided, uh, the Tampa T- Tribune reporter was calling the office of Wise, which is the research center we had, and somebody answered there, an FBI, and they started talking and I listened to this conversation. It's like they're old buddies. I mean, they, wow. they were talking to each other on face name basis, sharing information and things of that sort. I said, oh my God, is that, that's free press? That's what they're calling free press. I mean, they, they're just handing, feeding each other, you know, and helping each other with their own agenda mm. to target somebody there who is who basically just speaking his mind. Yeah. I, I want to I wanna ask you what the, the very first instance of trouble was for you. But before that, I, I heard you're very instrumental or you were very instrumental in the establishing of the, the Muslim community in Tampa. So I want to ask you real quick what that was like, just the establishment of the first masajid and the first Islamic schools in Tampa and, and, and who was there and how it went down, if you don't mind. Well, I mean, it's always been my nature that I don't believe in individual acts. I believe in institutions. Mm. So throughout my years in the U.S., I always was very keen on establishing institutions. When I was in Tampa, I was part of the effort that established the community, the center, the, the, uh, the mosque. I was leading, leading prayers also in terms of the sermons on Fridays. Which, which masjid? Uh, this is called Islamic, uh, uh, center, of Islamic uh, center of Greater Raleigh. Mm, okay. Became, and it's, it, you know, they have, it's a huge center now and they have a school also. So we started these efforts. Actually, I was there when we purchased the land. Now it became Mashallah. much bigger. It's next to campus, much bigger, camp, uh, much bigger uh, center. Uh, and then I established while there also the Islamic Association for Palestine, which was the the the, the uh, association or the institution that came before uh, American Muslims for Palestine. Now this was the foreigner, and of course became a target later. Mm. I left it in '83 because we had a dispute about how it should proceed in the future. There were other people who really make it trying to make it more nationalist in terms of. Focused on Palestinians, my approach was to open it up to non-Muslims and also to non-Palestinians because mm. this is how I'm thinking about Palestine. And then I established another one during the first intifada called Islamic Committee for Palestine. This is the one that I was tried on part, partially the, the, on on that institution. And then I established a research center uh, at uh, USF University of South Florida that was really more academic and research oriented. 
and this was also targeted by the FBI and closed by the FBI. But during my <coughs> time in Tampa, I also was very keen on on developing our community. So we established the masjid. We purchased land back uh, in eighty seven, about one year after I came, mm. and then it became a uh, the mosque, the Al uh, Qassam Mosque, and mm. then the community itself was Islamic community of Tampa. And then a few years later, I thought that we really need a school. Because so, so real quick on the masjid, was that the first masjid in Tampa? No, there was another one established. Uh, it's called Istaba. It was established by uh, mainly uh, South Asian Muslims. Islamic Society of Tampa. Islamic Bay. Society of Tampa. It wasn't very welcoming, and it was really very constrained. Mm. They wouldn't allow anything that has to deal with politics. Mm. You know, they just hated politics, and they didn't want anybody to speak. And of course... Being in America, uh, this is free society. We're not right. back in some authoritarian dictatorships where you're restricted to what you have to say. So it was incumbent upon us, obviously, to establish a community that has the 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 ability to speak its mind and yeah. to take positions, uh, regardless of how authorities or or, or other uh, uh, business people <laughs> see it. You know, wealthy Muslims who would like to restrict yeah. what you have to say because of their business interest rather than the interest of the community mm. at large. So so Istaba was preceded Qassam. Qassam was 87. When was Istaba? I'm not really sure because when mm. I came in 86, I arrived in January 86, it was already there. So mm. it must have been a few years earlier. I got you. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, so yeah, we were about the second mosque, the second Islamic center. Mm-hmm. And we started with one acre that we purchased. And then I thought that for this community to grow, we really need to think about the future. So I started purchasing one land after the other. Mm. Eventually, we got, uh, I think, 14 acres, uh, 10 years after. Uh, sorry, 10 years after, not uh, 87. That would have been 15 years after 87, but 10 years after the school started, which started in 92. Mm. We started with 22 kids. Three of them were my children. <laughs> now, today, it's the largest school in America. I mean, this what's called AYA today. At the time, it was called IAF, Islamic Academy of Florida. And of course, they changed the name because somehow they became afraid after my arrest. At any rate, we started the school and I was keen on making it, you know, to excel academically. And most of our graduates, I was there for 10 years as the principal and also as the person um, pushing the, the, uh, the vision and the expansion. And alhamdulillah, I mean, most of the kids that got graduating from this school went to the best schools in America. They became very successful doctors, professors, engineers, you know, you name it. Yeah. Well, why is it that if, if AYA was started up in 1992 uh, and it was an Islamic school, why is it that UAF got started? <laughs> That's a very interesting uh, question because we started the same year. Oh, okay. But it was one effort. And but I was stabbed in the back, and they would even admit to that, you know, our uh, Syrian brothers. What do you mean? Well, we started one effort together, but they didn't like politics, but they would never tell me that. So after I got all the community and got uh, everything going on, they basically kicked me out. So the, and they got the community to start it, and I thought that was the end of it. We were talking about IAF. UAF. Oh, so you were in UAF before I, There wasn't UAF or IAF. There was one school. Okay. Okay. One effort, mm-hmm. and we haven't named it yet, but we're going to name it Islamic Academy, whether Florida University. There wasn't really any name particular in name. Mm-hmm. Then we gathered the community, 
one day at Al Qassam Mosque in order to start registering people. They asked to be uh, the uh, the uh, the MC for that event. And then they told the people that I was no longer there, that I, you know, and they thanked me for my efforts, and they just kicked me out like that. Wow. And of course, I was, I was shocked. And when I had tried to find out, they said, you know, yeah, we're going to proceed and, uh, without you, because they didn't like also that the fact that we were outspoken politically. Mm. So they wanted a school that is not political or does not talk about issues. Yeah, that's what I was told. So I said, you know, we refused that. We tried to men, but didn't work. So we started our own effort. They start, so we started basically the same month. They started with 92 students. We started with 22 students, and then we continued. And alhamdulillah, both are successful. I'm not, you know, I'm not regretting yeah. the fact that we have two schools. I think it's good for competition. But the way it happened was was unethical, let's say. And of course, years later, almost 10 years later, nine years later, they came and apologized and said. What, did, what we did was wrong, and we should not have done that. But uh, what happened, happened. Yeah. Okay. So we don't need a name drop, obviously, but the way they, the people that ended up running with AIA or, or with UAF, they were the main donors. Is that how they were able to decide who's in charge and whatnot? Well, I mean, obviously they were the funders, but um, they, they were the main funders, yes. But they also, at the time, they had an agreement. Again, I didn't know that at the time with Istaba to establish okay. the school there. I mean, we originally going to have, because they were in Brooksville, we're going to have something in between. You know, I actually, we purchased the land between Brooksville and Tampa. Okay, it, Tampa. it makes sense now when you say Brooksville. Now I understand. Yeah, yeah. but at the time, that land uh, it came out to be, they purchased it, I didn't. Uh, that it didn't, didn't suit. It, it was, you weren't able to build on it. Mm. So it was waste of money. And then while we were organizing this they went and had an agreement with Istaba and maybe Istaba had something to do with it I do not know you know what I know is that they came to our mosque they registered our people and then they said I was out of it so uh, you know t- that was the betrayal that they told me that you know we need to part ways and we're going to go our own that's fine mm. but we got them everybody there in Tampa in in the mosque the mosque uh, in uh, Al-Qassam mosque and and that's what happened I'm not really bitter I mean I'm no, it's I the first you. time I ever even talk about it you know yeah. I, I don't know why you brought it up but well just curious about yeah. how Tampa was started well this is how it started actually yeah. I mean there was a lot of efforts and they were really keen on having a an Islamic school and they get credit for that mm-hmm. and uh, we also established our own and we struggled more because we didn't have the funds uh, but alhamdulillah it grew and uh, you know Allah provides for both and I'm, I'm glad that we have actually now even three or four or five schools in, in Tampa that yeah. tells you how you know Tampa was was not really on the map at all. And today, right. Tampa is one of the great cities right. where the Muslim community is really flourishing, and, and that's great. Yeah. I spoke with Sister Majda recently, who's the principal of Bayan Academy, and she told me that there's there's such a, a large influx of Muslim families to the area that they have no capacity mm-hmm. in the local Islamic schools, that they need to open another campus for well, Bayan, which they're working well. on. Well, I know that uh, IAF or AYA now has become or the facilities become one of the largest in the right. US, if not the largest. Yeah, uh, they, they have a, yeah, go ahead. Something like 1,500 students, they can t- that's unbelievable. Yeah. And just think of, you know, 25 years ago, it started with 22 kids, and now you have 1,500. It's unbelievable. Yeah, uh, mashallah. Yeah, and, and inshallah, this is, uh, and your mizan, inshallah, for the, the, the hazanat that you started up. 
There's a brand new gym that they have too. I don't know if you, mm. you got a I chance heard. to see it. Yeah. I heard, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's what happened there with uh, and the you know a lot of and Allah provided you know because throughout the years you know I got to know Hakim Al Ajwan who was the MVP mm-hmm. at the NBA two years in a row. I mean he was the biggest star at the time. He came to our campus to our school and he supported us with two hundred seventy five thousand yeah. dollars that he paid uh, that we purchased the land from. I also got a huge grant from. Um, uh, what was it called? The uh, Islamic, um, uh, it's the Islamic fund in, in uh, the fund school. Uh, anyway, Solidarity Fund or something in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And that uh, we got about 284,000. Know, so this is how we, we were able to uh, expand. And that's, that's, that's key today because today you have almost close to 35 acres. Yeah. So you could not have done this great projects today without the land. For and sure. That's how we were. We're really, you know, going everywhere, try to, to raise funds. I remember uh, during my um, trial, I had to go through all the finances. And I found out that between 1992 and 2003, when I was arrested, because I had all the, the records, we raised for the school almost five and a half million dollars, which is unbelievable you know to think of that school yeah uh, at that time and uh, you know the community did did give uh, some but a lot of it also came from from efforts that were outside Mashallah. that's where we were able to sustain alhamdulillah from the, the the basketball player as well as uh, a charity uh, yeah i mean we had from saudi arabia from the united arab emirates at the time from from other places you know uh, I got also during the late the eighty later years some people from Brooksville themselves mm. who were really coming and and supporting um, uh, the, the the project itself. Wow! So I, it wasn't really self funded. It had a lot of support abroad then, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, <coughs> our community was not a rich community. Yeah. I mean, we didn't really have a lot of business people or doctors coming to support us. I mean, uh, we were charging very little, like $1,000 a child and sometimes even less. Mm. So we always had deficits, but always, alhamdulillah, God provided to us. I remember I always, always had to worry about payroll every two weeks, always. But we never missed once a payroll. Wow. I mean, sometimes I remember (laughs) one point there was uh, a payroll and it was the time during the height of the Tampa Tribune attack on me. And I didn't have, I didn't, I was, you know, I didn't even think about payroll at the time. I just was very busy trying to respond. And then um, I didn't have payroll. And then the secretary calls me one day and says somebody came and dropped uh, cash. And when I counted the cash, it was exactly the same amount as payroll. I don't even know the name of that person today. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. So then. That's the the height of the attack for the Tampa Tribune. What's the beginning of the attack? When, when was it that you realized well, there's trouble? Well, this happened in 94. There was a, uh, a, a pseudo-journalist. He presented mm-hmm. himself as a journalist. And then if I can just lean you into the mic a tiny bit more. Mm. Yeah. There was this person who presented himself as a journalist, and he wasn't really a real journalist. He was somebody who was... Uh, masquerading as a journalist he was uh, very tight with the Israelis and I learned that later and he called and I had a program at the time with PBS 
about Islam that mm. I was giving weekly, you know, in the local channel. Uh, it was called Peace Be Upon You. Anyway, well, what year is this? This is 94. Okay. So he came and had an interview, and I immediately knew that this was a setup. Uh, this was a Mossad operation. Wow. The type of questions he was asking. So, and then he recruited a local journalist uh, from the Tampa Tribune, and they started a series of of articles. And again, I talked to him once from the series of questions. I knew that this was another attempt. Well, to what, basic what, what kind of questions? Assassinate. I mean, all kinds of questions about Palestine, about you know your your uh, relationship with certain people, certain groups, certain. Uh, positions and so on and so forth. It, I mean, they would pick and choose whatever they want, but the point is to uh, uh, portray you as somebody who's sympathetic to terrorism and to violence. Mm. And that series came uh, on on uh, Memorial Day weekend in 1995, and that's when the uh, you know after that never stopped. Uh, I believe before my arrest in 2003, if you had Googled or at least did the search on the number of articles the Tampa Tribune wrote about me between 1995, uh, including, by the way, the um, Oklahoma City bombing that I talked about, in which they were trying to point fingers at me mm. because of that. So between 95 and 2003, early 2003, over 1,500 articles I was mentioned. Wow. I mean, just imagine 1,500 over an eight-year period, uh, eight, uh, period. It's almost 200 a year. On average, I mean, it's just amazing. Wow. I mean, I remember one day during Thanksgiving, on '95. What happens on Thanksgiving? People are celebrating. There's no news. Yeah. So they had on section B, you know, front page section B, things you should be thankful for, and the first thing you should be thankful you're not Samuel Arian. <laughs> and then they started repeating every, all the lies, and they were putting. So wow. they just, you know, they just bring my name whenever. When my house was searched in '95 front page Tampa Tribune. They had the map to my house, how to get to my house, this license plate of my car in the back of the car, and telling them that they don't know where my whereabouts are as if I have fled someplace. Wow. That's how they were portraying me. That's insane. So it was it was one article that led to f so many other No, it was, that articles. wasn't an article. That was a documentary. In 94, this journalist uh -huh. who recruited another, this he had a documentary, so it was an interview, sit in interview. And then he, that interview was, was aired on PBS uh, late 94. And then it was picked up by this journalist. And then he started this series of articles that came throughout an eight-year period. And that journalist, he never, I mean, he was always bringing me. He would come to Tampa and talk about me and, 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 and point fingers. He said, I was responsible not only for the Oklahoma City bombing. I was responsible for the, the first World Trade Center bombing. He said that in public. Wow. Yeah. So, so, but the documentary is about Islam. What is it that pissed? No, it was about he called it Jihad in America or something like that. No, I thought you meant the PBS documentary. Oh, no, no, I had a program on PBS mm -hmm. that was a weekly program. It was called Peace Be Upon You. I was talking about Islam. I was talking yes. about different things. He came right saying that because of that program, he wants to do an interview with me. Right, I understand. So yeah. I'm wondering wh what it is that motivated him to come after you. What did you do well, before? Well, my, my, my theory is that he was, uh, he was recruited. I mean, I would say that this was a transition time. You know, the uh, Cold War has ended. Mm -hmm. uh, Israel now wants to find uh, its a, uh, um, uh, functional use for the U.S., and they have to find new enemy. If you go and look, and th this was 
you know, this was during the Intifada. Intifada years between 87 and 91. Mm-hmm. Then Kuwait was occupied, invaded by Iraq. Then there was this war to kick Saddam out of Kuwait. And, and because of that, there was a, a huge effort by the U.S. And, and the Arab regimes at the time to bring uh, Israel to the table to try to negotiate a settlement. During that time, Israel wanted to change the nature of the uh, of the threat. So the PLO or the national movements were never were no longer really a convenient target. So they started saying that Islam is the threat to to, to the West. Now the communism has fallen, and you could trace that back. You know, I have many many doc- documents that could show that late eighties during the Intifada years, the height of the Intifada years, early 90s. Now we see a lot of Israeli hands in trying to portray Islam as the next threat Mm -hmm. to the West. You know, they had target the West, target America. Uh, They had their own people in Congress having something called the uh, uh, Committee, the Task Force, Task Force on uh, Terrorism and Unconventional Warfare. Now these things are very common. They were not very common at the time. The guy who was hitting this was an Israeli who worked with the Mossad at one point. And then you had people who were the Mossad coming to become advisors to Congress people and other influential people in government. So this guy was recruited to, to, to further this agenda, which is to make Islam, Islamic groups, Islamic uh, uh, movements as being the, the enemy of the West and they need to be targeted. And this is our new enemy that we need to start uh, fighting. But but why did they single you out specifically? Well, because, I mean, for one thing, obviously, uh, obviously I was on the radar of 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 of, uh, of somebody, uh, possibly mm-hmm. the Israelis. I was very active going around campuses. I was speaking a lot uh, throughout the United States. Uh, I was invited to many, many, many campuses speaking about Islam and speaking about Palestine as well. Uh, I also had uh, this committee in which we were organizing conferences. But most importantly, I think, they were also afraid of our uh, WISE connection. And WISE was a research center. And we were bringing uh, scholars. Those scholars are uh, throughout the United States uh, uh, specializing in the Middle East and Islam. We'll bring Islamic scholars and then we'll have a conversation for a whole day. We brought Hassan Turabi at one point, Khurshid Ahmed from Pakistan, Hassan Turabi from Sudan, of course. And then the third one was supposed to be Rashid Ghanoushi from Tunisia, and then they started targeting us. So they went to the State Department, and they're asking the State Department to uh, cancel the visa of Rashid Ghanoushi. And they were successful in doing that. And then we became, this was in 94, early 94. Mm. So we became, and then because of the U.S. also, they had a campaign against the U.S. I was a speaker, you know, CENTCOM is in, yeah. in, the, in Tampa. CENTCOM is the uh, military command that is basically in charge of the Middle East, 22 countries now. So I was invited to give a speech or to give to be on the panel, panelist, because they have this uh, summer conference. Uh, it was uh, the title of the, of the panel was on Islam and the U.S. And along with me was Edward Said and John Esposito. And they didn't like that. This was in 93. Wow, right, Edward Said and John Esposito? Yes, and, wow. and we, yeah, we were in that panel. And I really <laughs> thought at the time that I wouldn't have another chance to address. These are military people who are basically in charge of the Middle East. You yeah. have 300 you know, military ranks sitting there, a lot of them generals and, and military attaches of different embassies throughout. And you only have one, one chance to address these people. 
So I thought that I really need to speak my mind. I'm not going to hold anything back and tell them what's wrong with the Middle East, with, with their policy. So I spoke very forcefully. I mean, even Edward Said came after me and saying, I'm not that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> radically, you know. <laughs> and then John Esposito also spoke. And I remember Gary Sick, who was the, uh, was on the National Security Council uh, during Carter, uh, President Carter's uh, 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 presidency. Uh, he came to me, and he's, of course, a famous university professor, and he was an Iran specialist. He said, you're a very brave young man. I mean, these people never hear that kind of talk. So I really spoke my mind, and I told him, you know, what's wrong with, the, with, with their policy and why, why it's wrong and, mm. and what's going to happen. And I remember at the time, the uh, commander, his name was General Hor, I believe, and he, they came and thanked me and all that. So I was very active. I was known, I, you know, I was different places and also i was secretly i mean they say 93 so i'm assuming by by 94 uh, they also were monitoring me you know they were surveying me it turned out between 93 end of 93 and 2003 less than 10 years they had 472,000 calls monitored on 18 separate lines that i had access to uh which accumulated to about 21,000 hours Wow. So somebody was there, you know, yeah. monitoring, obviously, surveying, not happy with what I do. And uh, during the latter years, you know, bit after 97, I was very active on civil rights uh, throughout the United States. I was leading the effort, almost 40 organizations, uh, to do away with secret evidence, to ban the use of secret evidence. Mm. And we were very successful. I mean, we got, uh, in terms of education, we went throughout the United States talking about the issue everywhere. Can you explain the issue for a second? Well, secret evidence was a practice that was basically made legal after the 1996 legislation called IRA-IRA, mm. which, which dealt with immig immigrants. And they started using it the first time was April 96, even before. What it is is that they will arrest somebody and they will present evidence behind closed doors to the judge. And then the judge would ask that defendant to defend himself while he has no idea what evidence was presented to him. And of course, in all cases, they would be denied bail. Mm. So they will stay in prison. And it was called classified information. We called it secret evidence. After about two year campaign, everybody was calling it secret evidence. And that's when I know that we won because you framed it and it, people agreed. Even the judge at the end called it, called it secret evidence. The media called it secret evidence. At the end, even prosecutors called it secret evidence. Wow. So between April 96 and April 98, we had 29 cases that we could count, 28 of which were, were Arabs and Muslims. Mm. And they would be arrested almost on a, on a monthly basis. Somebody would be arrested, denied bail, and put in prison and putting all this pressure. So we established this organization called National Coalition to Protect Political Freedom, NCPCF. And then we, t we started organizing. At the beginning, we had a lot of Irish because it was used against the Irish also before us. But after the Good Friday Agreement in 98, you know, all their people were let go, which tells you this was all political. It's mm -hmm. nothing to do with really uh, violating the law or anything. But we stayed the course. It was national organization. Many non-Muslims were with us. But I was the president of the coalition. We started organizing in all spheres. We had panels uh, uh, in major conferences. We had educational events, bringing journalists, bringing security people, bringing politicians, bringing intellectuals, you know, organizing throughout. 
Then we had starting, we're having a legal campaign. We're starting having legal victories, trying to free people, those who were not deported at the time we were able to free. Uh, of course, w- my brother-in-law, Mazin Najjar, was also one of these victims. Mm. That's how I you know, immediately knew that this is a big problem because you know, they're tar- starting to basically attack or target uh, uh, vulnerable people who have, uh, they were working on their immigration status, but they get arrested and then they don't know how to to, to defend themselves because they were incarcerated after yeah. secret evidence. And then we had political campaign. That's when I started the political campaign in 98. By 2000, you know, I personally, me and my wife and family, we were going to Washington almost on a weekly basis lobbying politicians. Uh, by the spring of 2000, we had 129 Congress people signing onto this legislation. You know, we were able to identify certain Congress people who were really against, you know, uh, secret evidence, against unconstitutional practices. They were really uh, supporting our efforts. Uh, you know, David Bonnier was one in Michigan. He was also the uh, minority whip, the number two uh, Democrat in Congress at the time. We got few Republicans as well. You know, we were <coughs> uh, having the, these rallies uh, in Tampa, outside Tampa. We joined uh, groups locally. One is called HOPE, Hillsborough Organization for Progress and Equality, which is a local yeah. activist group, basically uh, uh, churches. We, as a mosque, we joined that. So it was right. the first time a mosque would join you know, greater effort. They were very respectful of us. They will always uh, uh, cooperate. They will uh, invite us to give prayers either at the beginning or the end. We really became very very good friends you know with yeah. the pastors and with the organizers i, I attended uh, the recent hope event we just had it in a thought in, a, in ramadan they came well down. this is how we we started i mean we started with secret evidence mm-hmm. i took them we get, went in a trip to washington and this is how secret evidence stopped by the way through these organizing efforts mm. we went there 12 pastors and organizers and there was a meeting at the uh, uh, justice department in which they had to answer to these people because they also involved their congressperson who went to the Justice Department saying, why you aren't you answering these people? I mean, it's a very good story to tell. I mean, it will take time to, to tell it, but the bottom line is that after that trip, the Justice Department said that they will no longer authorize secret evidence to be used, they call it classified information, to be used at the district level. It has to be authorized by the Attorney General, who was Janet Reno at the time, or her deputy, Eric Holder. And after that, which was April 98, as I said, no case was authorized. Wow. So we stopped the bleeding, and we started trying, you know, and then we turned into how we can overturn this by banning it politically and freeing them legally. So it was a great effort. The last one to be freed was Madsen himself in December 2000. And then we started working on uh, trying to ban it. So as I said, we had 129 people in Congress signing it to it to ban it. Mm. And when it was a markup, which is means they will vote in the Judiciary Committee, we also brought the chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time, Henry Hyde, very famous congressman from Illinois, Republican. Uh, he came to Tampa, and we educated him about the issue, and he became supportive. Then he scheduled a hearing in which my wife testified. And just to give you a, 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 who was against whom, on our side, we have my wife, whose brother was incarcerated. We had a victim of secret evidence. We had the 
uh, David Cole, the head of, uh, he was, now he's the head of the ACLU legal committee. At the time, he was a constitutional professor at Georgetown, and we had the head of the ACLU uh, legal uh, department, Greg Nujayim. On the other side was Stephen Emerson, the journalist I told you, mm. uh, uh, who is basically supported by, by, by the Israelis. And then you have the ADL, American Jewish Congress, American Jewish Committee. The FBI even didn't show up to the hearing. They were embarrassed, actually, to send somebody. So the Zionists were basically fighting tooth and nail against this legislation. When it came time to vote, we won that vote 26 to 2 or 28 to 2. So we had the majority, and that came through effort. It didn't come out of the blue. Yeah. We were visiting them, visiting their offices every single week, you know, making sure that we get the count. Yeah. And during that time, we went back to the Senate. And once we, we, uh, we won that battle, we went to the Senate and we had the new leg- legislation at the time to ban secret evidence. It was introduced by Spencer Abraham, who was senator from Michigan, and Edward Kennedy, the late Edward Kennedy. And we were pushing hard. Now before, you know, early 2000, this was a very contentious election. It was a Bush and Gore. And Iowa had a uh, relationship with both parties you know, trying to push also the secret evidence. There was a lot of work there. They will give me lip service. You know, I had a very influential Republican who was helping me with the Republican Party because it's diffi- difficult, more difficult to, to, to talk to Republicans. But he was opening doors for me. Mm. And we were speaking to senators and trying to get it on fast track because obviously we don't have time to schedule hearings and this and that. and. Uh, at the time, I also had relationship with people within the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party. But by October, as I said, they were just giving me lip service. It became very, very tight race. So I get a call from this person who was very well connected to the Republican Party. And he tells me that uh, he had a call from Karl Rove, who was running Bush's campaign. And he said, how can we get the endorsement of the Muslim community? Obviously, everybody's trying to get a little bit here or there uh, to get some advantage over the other. So he called me and said, <coughs> what can we do? I said, listen, this was, I believe that call came on October 6, 2000. I said, you know what the issue is. We've, we've prioritized secret evidence and civil rights of Muslims to be at the top of the agenda. So the candidate needs to say that I'm against secret evidence. And he needs to support the legislation that is in Congress at the moment. Remember, we, we passed the Judiciary Committee in the House, but we still have to pass the House and also we have to pass the Senate, and there was very little time left. Mm. So I said, okay. And then he did something that I never dreamt it, you know, it's going to happen. It's something that was really shocking to me, but very pleasant. Uh, the next day, October 7th, there was a debate. So Jim Lehrer from PBS was the moderator, and he had Bush and Gore sitting next to him. And then he asked Gore something about the, uh, I believe, racial profiling, which is used against African-Americans. He gave the standard answer, you know, driving white black, and you get targeted, and that was wrong, and blah, blah, blah. And then he turned to Bush, and Bush said, yeah, this is wrong, but there is another form of racial profiling. It's called secret evidence, and it's used against Arabs and Muslims and must stop, and there is legislation in Congress that needs to pass. Wow. So the guy calls me right after and said, I delivered, because everything I asked him was told before 62 million Americans. So I said, of course, <laughs> you, 
You wow. ask, you, I mean, you delivered, and now we have to deliver. I said, are you going to deliver on the endorsement? I said, let me see what I could do. So I called that night all the major Muslim leaders who are leading the organizations that deal with political issues. So we had a meeting that uh, evening, and everybody agreed to endorse Bush based on those statements. So the only group that did not want to do it was the uh, group tied to African-Americans, the Muhammad group. Mm. It's called Coalition for Good Government. So the following Monday, or I, I remember it was a Monday, we gather in Washington, we give the endorsement for Bush based on this, based on this endorsement of secret evidence. Of, and of course, that also helped me with Congress because now Republicans are more open. Remember, the, the, the Congress was in the hands of the Republicans. Now that Bush, the main candidate, is for it, became much easier to talk to them. Yeah. Meanwhile, even the good uh, the the African American group, Coalition for Good Government. I remember they attended that press conference. The guy was sitting next to me in the audience, and he said, "We understand why you did this. We cannot sign to it, but we 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 support it mm. because, of course, traditionally they are Democrats." Right. So, it's a quick quick question. Um, so you're saying that then candidate George Bush called on the the American Muslim community. To support his bid for presidency, he didn't say that. He said he said what I told him he needs to say. That he needs to say I am against secret evidence. No, I understand, but he he wanted your guys' support, and he did, and he got yeah. it. and he got it based on on that statement. Yes. So why why is it so important to him to get Muslims? Because Muslims because are because at the time it was fifty fifty, very tight. Everybody's trying to get some advantage. Mm. I mean, he is something, right? He didn't know what to do, but that's probably it's Karl Rove, not, not Bush. Because Karl Rove is the one who called this guy, and mm. he wanted to get the endorsement of the Muslim community. Everybody's trying to get a little edge uh, here right. or there, and I think they did it, and it worked for them. But and this is the national level, not Florida. No, this is national level. So mm. what happened is that when we went and endorsed Bush, we had a meeting afterwards after the press conference. We identified six states. That's where we can make a difference. Mm. One of them was Florida, wow. and I was assigned Florida. So I went there for the next month, campaigning for Bush based on that. Now, we know in Florida, for example, the, uh, the registration is two to one Democrats for Muslims. Mm. And I got all the registration rolls. And what we did, we, d we, we flipped it. You know, our analysis after the vote is that 74% of, because I, 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 we did a, a scientific sampling, my son did it at the time, and we found that that 74% of Florida Muslims voted Bush. Mm. And about 18%, I believe it was, it was also Nader was there. So one candidate, Gore and Nader, one got 18, one got 8%, something that, like mm. that. And Bush won Florida by 537 votes. Total. Wow. Out of 6 million that were, were cast. That's 537. Crazy. So after that, and of course it took months, uh, yeah, even no, weeks, weeks for, for to determine that he won yeah. the, the race. In but Florida, let me just say yeah. what this is that after he won, the Republican Party recognized our efforts. They invited me to uh, Washington, mm. and um, they celebrated, and they 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 honored our 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 efforts, and they thanked me personally. It was G Newt Gingrich, who was the former Speaker of the House, Tom Davis, who was in charge of the Congressional. Republican committee, and uh, John Sununu, the, the elder, 
uh, who was the governor of uh, New Hampshire and also the chief staff of the Elderbush. Mm. Three of them were there and three of them thanked me for, for that effort. And then after that, I said, okay, now we need to do away with secret evidence. And yeah. they said, of course, but we have to obviously to form government and all that. So by the spring, it was Jan Ashcroft who became attorney general. And they said, he's going to, you know, the Justice Department is going to uh, uh, study the issue the, 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 and then come back to you. So in August, they called me and said, we studied it. We're going to do away with secret evidence. So we want you to bring all the Muslim leaders to Washington in the White House, and we're going to celebrate the end of secret evidence. Wow. That day was 9-11. Wow. Look at that. Actually, if you read Carl um, Rove's memoir, on page 325, he says on that page that at 3.05 that day on 9-11, Bush was supposed to, talk, uh, to, to, to see Muslim, the, the group of American Muslim leaders. He doesn't say why, but he just note that. Also, you'd see that even though the, the, there were no flights allowed for the next few days, when they went to the National Cathedral, all Muslim leaders were there. Everybody was asking, how did they get there? There is no flights because they were already there, <laughs> because they were supposed to attend that meeting to end the use of secret evidence. And of course, now we have completely a new dynamics. Yeah, what a strange twist of fate. That It seems like American Muslims were kind of making it. They're in the, in the White House, they're talking to... And that's why, leaders. you know, say, why are you targeted? Why is the, I was at the center of all this. Yeah. And I could see during my discovery that they were following every single thing I was doing. Everything, and, and they, they see this guy is becoming more dangerous, becoming more, uh, becoming closer and closer to the centers of power. You mm. know, I've been to the White House, these kind of meetings four or five times. You know, even and this is this is a very funny and interesting story. My son, who was uh, a a, uh, a Duke student, he was in his senior year, um, just finished year, uh, junior, going to his senior. He was interning with Congressman David Bonnier in the summer of 2001. This is before 9-11 mm. and after we elected Bush. So the Muslim community was invited to the White House uh, to talk about what they called faith-based initiative, something you know about religious organizations and mm -hmm. institutions. So during the meeting, you know, uh, what's this? I was to told this story by this influential Republican uh, Elliot Abrams, he was the National Security Council. So he passes by and he sees all these Muslims. So he asks the Secret Service, he says, who's in the meeting? Give me the manifest. So he reads the names and he sees the name al -Aryan. He thought it was me. So he thought this person's not supposed to be here. This, of course, is a well-known Zionist. So the Secret Service goes to my son, who was just 20 years old, and he says, please back up and leave. You, you, you're not supposed to be here. He was just taking notes for yeah. one year. So he decided, you know, while he's packing, everybody is looking and said, why are you leaving? He said, I've been asked to leave. Everybody didn't take them two seconds to decide to stand up together and leave the meeting and hold a, an impromptu press conference at the steps of the White House and say that this is discrimination, this is, this is, this is uh, unacceptable and should stop. I was in Dallas at the time, and I'm looking at, you know, I was in a restaurant, and the headline news, the first 
item of, you know, everybody <laughs> there with my son. They said, what's going on here? Yeah. And it turned out, and you know what happened after that? Mm. Everybody respected that position. So we get an apology. My wife gets a personal apology from Bush, written apology. The White House spokesperson, Ari Flatcher at the time, gives an apology to the Muslim community at large. The Secret Service goes to my son, offers him, you know, apologizes, and, and offered him a private tour of the West Wing. Wow. <laughs> You know that says when you when you when you know how to respect yourself, people respect you. Now I'm going to give you another story that happened during Obama. Fast forward ten years. In 2010, there was another meeting at the White House of Muslim leaders. One of them was one of the icon of Muslims in America for 50 years, Dr. the late Dr. Jamal Barzinji, and mm -hmm. I, I I asked him and, and he confirmed the story. While he was going, you know, through the security check, he was 70-something at the time. He was asked, I think he was 70 years old, and my son was 20, so there's 50 years different. He was asked to leave. He left. No one did anything. Everybody kept going. When you're not, you know, wow. see these two stories. 20-year-old, everybody stands up for him, and you get letters of apology. You get respect. And you get, you know, people who would, would, would say that this is wrong. And when a 70-year-old is turned back, no one stands up for him. Everybody goes in. That tells you, what, you know, that, the, that tells you everything you need to know about where Muslims were at one point and where they are, you know, at the time. This is, and even this is a friendlier White House during yeah. Obama. And that's happened during his time. That's insane. So, so well, where is it that you're at in terms of... Uh your your career as a professor when this is all happening everything's going okay at well USF? i was i was tenured in 92 it's another everything was struggle uh in uh, the application was in november so in, in in august we have a new chairman in our my department was an israeli mm -hmm. and i met him maybe once when i applied again just happened in a, in a very strange way because some things happen and you don't know why, but you know there is there is divine intervention. Uh, I didn't make a copy. It's not like today, you know, everything is online easy. You have to have actual hard copy of your tenure application. It's very very thick. Mm. So I applied, and the next day uh, I asked. I didn't make a copy for myself. I asked the secretary, so she made she makes me a copy the next day. They already met and voted to deny me tenure. Wow. And I found out that this Israeli chairman, he was behind it. And he went after me with these different professors. And some of them apologized in person that they were pressured to vote against me. So I started trying to find out what's going on. And then at the college level, I was uh, tenure. I was approved. My application was approved six to one, the one coming from the department. And then it went all the way up. He threatened to resign. I was told by an assistant dean, but eventually I got tenured. Once you get tenured, it becomes very difficult to, to, to fire you. So in 93, I was already a tenured professor, and of course, investigation started in 95. I, I was on sabbatical in 95, and then after that, I was suspended two more years pending investigation. Mm. Even though they had their own investigation, in 96, which not only cleared us, it was, you know, giving us all kinds of accolades of our efforts. 
yeah. you know, in terms of the research center we established and how valuable it was for USF and the community at large. Even with that, yeah. I was one year on sabbatical, two years uh, uh, under investigation. I came back in 98. And between 98 and 2001, everything was going great until obviously that interview with Riley in which they are, now we have a different USF president. Mm-hmm. And she was she was a Zionist. She had her own foundation in Israel, comes from a wealthy family, and she was pressured. And this is all public information now. I'm not making anything up. They are saying that we were behind, you know, him, and it, that's what precipitated my trial. Yeah, and, and you're referring to Judy Ganshaft. Yeah. And what prompted the investigation that they, that they well, launched? <clears throat> all along, they were trying to get rid of me. I yeah. mean, even before I was tenured, every year. My secretary, the secretary of the department would tell me that uh, Professor so-and-so who was a very uh, uh, known Zionist on campus who was after me publicly. He would write letters to the student paper against me. He would call the department and say, is he up for tenure? Is he up for tenure? So that year, <laughs> said, yeah, he's up for tenure. And they started the campaign. Now, after I got tenure, they were very, uh, you know, um, I don't know, mad, they were very upset, whatever yeah. it was. So they kept they kept telling the, and we, I didn't know this, of course, until they admitted it later, they would go after the university president. It was Betty Castor at the time. She said, I cannot do anything about it. It's over. We did the investigation. There's nothing wrong. Yeah. So when they have change of president, they st- started talking to Judy Genshaft. You need to get rid of this president. This is before 9-11. Mm. She said, I don't have any power to do that. It's tenured, and that's the end of the story. After 9-11 and after my interview, they renewed their campaign. And then she started saying, okay, what can we do? So she started talking to her legal people. And then uh, the legal side said, well, he did not identify. He did not say, I am don't represent you. Some, something that is very silly. Mm-hmm. That we can suspend him now and then we can fire him later. So I was suspended in, in September. I was told this is because of my safety and how much they were uh, 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 concerned about me. And then three months later, she already had cooked up something. So she has the board coming and she sends me a notice that you're about to be fired. Uh, what's, what's the basis? And they said the basis is that you have been talking to the press without identifying that you're only speaking on, your, uh, you know, on behalf of yourself or something. Something that was very silly, mm. of course. But that didn't go well with many organizations, including AAUP, which is American Association of University Professors, the premier institution in America that defends professors, mm. and also this, the, the uh, faculty union and the faculty senate. All these came against her. So they all voted, and they said, you cannot do that. This is against academic freedom. This is against tenure, and we're not going to stand up for that. And then AAUP launched its own investigation. They sent one in the spring. They investigated and they came to Judy, uh, Judy Genshaft, to the university president at the time, telling her, listen, if it's not back by August, we're going to censure you. She cannot take censure. Censure is very bad for university. It's a black spot. She cannot get, you know, uh, 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 faculty who are, you know, recognized uh, faculty around, uh, around the world. She cannot get uh, honor societies, things like that. Mm-hmm. She cannot afford to do that. So she said... She went actually in person to the U.S. attorney in, in February asking for help. She went to the Senate. Who, who's the U.S. attorney? At the time, Paul Perez. But the U.S. attorney in the Middle District said, can you help me here? 
So they said, and then they announced after her visit that the impaneling of grand jury, which is usually done in secret, here it was done in public. They said, well, now we're going to have a grand jury to look into this guy, mm. you know, trying to, 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 to help her out. She goes to the uh, intelligence uh, committee chairman at the time. He was Bob Graham, who was a U.S. Uh, senator from Florida. And he said, I haven't seen anything that will make me worried. And he, that was in public about this guy. Wait, so quick question. The USF president went to the National Intelligence Committee? The chairman. But how did she... Because he's from Florida. He so is, she has political connections. Of course. I mean, she's a university uh, president. That's, that's big. But also the uh, Bob Graham, who was the senator from Florida, he was the chairman of the Intelligence Committee oh, in the I Senate. See. Okay. So she goes to him because he's her senator also. I said, can you help us here? And she, he said, I looked into the record because he has access. I didn't see anything that is worrying. Yeah. And then she goes to the uh, uh, Paul Perez, the U.S. attorney, and he says, okay, we're going to look into that. We're going to have a grand jury. So she's now, but she gets, that was in February. So in April, she gets the warning from AAUP saying, if this guy, the investigation is done, our committee we don't think he's done anything wrong. If he's not back in August for the fall semester, you're going to get censured. Yeah. So she hopes something's going to happen through the summer. Nothing happens. So she sends my attorney in August, through her attorney, is that we're going to give him a settlement if he resigns. So my attorney calls me and he said, they're offering you almost a million dollars if you would resign. I said, uh, let me see it in writing and I decide. So the next day, they didn't send anything. He called me on Saturday, this Sunday. So on Monday, they go and file a lawsuit to get me fired. So we're trying to find what happened. So he gets, my attorney gets a call from somebody who's from Tallahassee. Mm. <laughs> Basically, he tells him, listen, the, she went to the uh, uh, chairman of the board, who was a Republican appointee of Jeb Bush. And he said, I've been calling this guy a terrorist. Now you're telling me you give him a million dollars over my dead body. That's not going to happen. So he goes to, let me handle this. He said, I cannot get censured. He said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. He goes to the Florida governor, who is the, the brother of the president, Jeb Bush. Mm. And he said, this is, this is, this is coming me too late. I need time. You can't just, you know, I cannot flip a switch and, and yeah. get it. So I need time. So they cook up a scheme in which in order to delay the censure, they're going to go to court. They know it's a losing battle, losing case. They sue me, say, we would like the court to tell us that it's okay for us to fire him. No court is going to do that. They knew this. And so, but they're trying to buy time. Yeah. So first they go to state court. In October, they lose. Then they go to federal court. In December, they lose. And in January, I go and sue them. Meanwhile, there was no censure because there is a pending case in the courts. But what happened meantime is I could see this during my discovery is that the grand jury now starts hearing the case almost on a weekly basis where usually they hear two or three days a, a month. Mm. So by February, they already got, and you could see how many lies and how many deceptions they used telling the grand jury things which are totally untrue. And that was very much reflected in the indictment. They had to clean it up in the superseding indictment later. But at any rate, they went there and they got their indictment and then it was easy for them to fire me. That's, that's how it happened. So, so whenever Jeb Bush went to, uh, or his camp, was someone from his... You could see, for example, yeah. on that week, the week in which they sued me, Jeb Bush made a, a trip to the White House. It was not scheduled. Yeah. He had to go there and they said he's going there to discuss education. 
and you can go and it's it's documented yeah what education so when he was doing this there was no one from the campaign that had coordinated with you the efforts for banning secret evidence no one oh, came wait to a your support during the the elections of 2000 during the elections of 2000 actually when i went back to florida in october mm-hmm. uh we i had a relationship with him it was really i mean it wasn't i mean it wasn't that great i mean i saw him in a couple of events we exchanged letters and i mean he knew me i mean he d- he lied when he said i don't know this guy that's that's a lie mm. because we had correspondence and we talked and then i asked him that the muslim community is going to endorse and will endorse bush and we would like to help in the campaign and he directed me to whom should i i, I uh, work with in terms of the the campaign uh, uh, of of uh, of bush uh, in October 2000, so he, he knew he was he was very much aware of this. But what happened in 2002 is now he wants to fire me. He wants to help get, uh, uh, the the president. He wants to help USF to get me fired, and that's when he went to Washington, tried to orchestrate and push for that indictment. So no one in Washington came to your side. No, but <coughs> there was many other efforts going on. Um, you know, one prosecutor who later on targeted me and you know and, and delayed my release by six years wow. you, you wanted me to uh, um, say certain things uh, which would be against everything I believe in and I totally refused mm. <coughs> and then he, he targeted me after the case in Florida ended gotcha so we're at one hour here and seven minutes you do we have like 20 minutes left is that okay or what's your time like sure yeah okay um, so you got indicted and that helped facilitate your uh, yeah, I mean, I was indicted in February 2003 in a bloated indictment. I never thought, I mean, I, I always thought they're going to do something, but something to that extent yeah. was really a shock. You're talking about, uh, they were asking, as they told the judge, uh, it was uh, a conspiracy with four people. Actually, they had like eight people, but four of them were in, Flo- were in the U.S. And they were asking for three life sentences plus 220 years. I mean, on what charges? <coughs> All kinds of charges. They had over a hundred counts. Mine were, I think, seventeen or something. It was conspiracy. I mean, I just give you one example of how outrageous and how far they were willing to go. Yeah. They had one conspiracy. This particular conspiracy actually was created in the seventies uh, for the mafia because they couldn't get the top bosses, so they only getting the the the, the uh, functionaries so they said it's a conspiracy whatever they're doing you're responsible for so they mm. they cooked up that conspiracy that you're part of this organization and therefore you're responsible for everything they did but you have to have crimes so in the mafia case they you know the prostitution money laundering gambling murder whatever in my case they had like nine different crimes and one of them was um extortion and money laundering and, and all this. And extortion in law is supposed to be against people. So one attorney in our legal team, you know, was my co-defendant. Uh, he's also the son of Edward Said, mm-hmm. William Said. He had a little motion saying, who did they extort? So the judge asked the prosecution, who did they extort? And believe it or not, they said they extorted land from the state of Israel. And then the judge says, they cannot extort a country, an entity. They have to extort a person. So he took it out. It will not have made a difference. You only need one crime. There were listing nine. So they superseded 
a year later, and they put it back in. And the judge asked, what happened? He said, now we're going to bring people to show that they have been extorted. And I was, you know, I, I really wondered, who are these people? So during the trial, they w- brought 21 Israelis. One of them, a lady, she testified in court to the following. They brought her from Costa Rica. She said, in 1996, I had a sister who died because of suicide bombing. I was living in Tel Aviv. I was too afraid. I couldn't sleep for months. So I had to pay to, I had to sell my restaurant in Tel Aviv and immigrate with my husband and two children to Costa Rica. And this is how I extorted her. That was the extent of her testimony. But what does a Tel Aviv bombing have to do with a professor at USF? Because she, again, it's the concept of conspiracy. If they, can't, they say you're associated with this group who did the bombing, therefore you're responsible for her. So what association did you have, if any? Well, I mean, this is the point. I mean, they were trying to establish all these associations, and the fact of the matter is that the jury never... I mean, this was... You have... Keep this in mind. This was the longest trial since 9-11, and nothing has extended b- beyond what we did. This was six months trial. Mm. From opening to verdict, June 6th to December 6th, six months every single day, and 12 jurors. And what did they vote? No indictments, no, 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 no convictions, none. Wait, so even, th- even if you look at some of the, the, the charges mm-hmm. that they didn't have uh, 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 consensus on, it was 10 to 2 for acquittal. I hear you. I thought you said you did have an indictment, though, which is what facilitated your firing from indictment USF. Indictment is not conviction. Okay. An indictment is basically you're being charged. So they charged us. That's an indictment. But conviction is something different. So conviction was going to go to trial. Right. The, 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 uh, the jury did not convict us on a single charge. Over 100 charges Got it. did okay. not convict on a single one. And unfortunately, the judge did something which I thought was unethical. Mm. because what happened is that we had 18 jurors or 16 jurors, right? So there were 12 deliberating and some were still in the building because they were alternates. What happened is that after 13 days of deliberation, two jurors, after they voted on 78 charges of not guilty, they refused to deliberate. They don't want to deliberate anymore. And no one knows why, but I know why, because I looked into their questionnaire. They were the only two jurors who were reading the Tampa Tribune regularly, who were subscribers. They were already poisoned. Mm. They didn't want to, to, uh, to, to, to acquit because they see where this is going. So they stopped deliberating. When this issue went to the judge, the judge told them, gave them what is called the Allen charge, meaning that you really have to deliberate. You don't have to be pressured to vote in any particular way, but you cannot just stop deliberating. And then he did the unethical thing of seeing the partial verdicts. He saw 78 not guilty. So what did he do the next day? He ends the deliberation, even though he wow. could have dismissed the two jurors, brought two jurors who were in the building, and instead of holding another six months trial. And he let the, the, the two new jurors start from the beginning and see what kind of verdicts you get. But he know, but he saw this, you know, the writing was on the wall. He could see that this is going through not guilty all the way. So he brought in a fresh new jury? No. He dismissed it, and we are preparing for another trial. Now, because you don't have 
uh, you know, if the, ver the verdict has to be unanimous, and because you don't have a unanimous verdict, some of the charges they didn't have, because I said they refused to deliberate. So what happened? You still have few, few charges. You know what's funny is that when they superseded, they knew there were some charges that they were old, that they couldn't continue. And the judge kept telling them, when are you going to supersede? When are you going to supersede? So what they did, they brought some charge. So they dismissed these charges, but they replaced them with charges about things that happened in Chicago, not in Tampa, that I was totally unaware of. They did not bring a single evidence that I was somehow related to this, mm. right? The things that happened in Chicago. What's funny is that the person who was actually doing the things in Chicago, you know, the bank accounts, the Senate, he got acquitted of all these charges. And his name was on the account. He was the one who sent the packages for food to feed hungry people in Gaza, okay? They tied my name to these transactions. He was acquitted of everything, and I wasn't because the two ladies refused to deliberate. I mean, it was on things that have nothing to do with me whatsoever. Yeah. I never even knew that they existed. All right, so that, that were left. Now they could come back and try again because the judge, once he dismissed the, the jury and with, with verdicts that were not, uh, 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 there was no uh, decision, unanimous, unanimous decision on them, then that means that they would have to come back and uh, conduct a new trial. And so he was giving them another chance. But the government knew at the time that this is a very, now the case has become even much more difficult because it's, it's they built their theory on a conspiracy. Yeah. So Sami is here, Samih is here, Ghassan is here, Hatim is here. For two people in the middle have been acquitted. It's very difficult to, to prove it. It yeah. became much more difficult. So they wanted to get rid of it. At the same time, there is no, you, you can go and research all the trials. When the government sees that you have six to six, they don't retry. In our case, it was 10 to two against them. And yet they wanted to try, and they were begging, basically, my lawyers, to find a solution, to plead to something, because, and go. Mm. So that's what happened. I practically wrote my, my plea agreement you know I I just they gave us said you know plead to anything you know I was telling my lawyer I didn't do anything wrong he said doesn't matter I need to get you out of here they'll never let you go Be and and I'm out of this case because that original case in which it cost me 1.3 million dollars uh, he's out of it now you have to raise another million dollars mm. to get a new team and the judge now wants to to have it you know within two months I don't even have a legal team yeah, and they said they don't want to try. They just wanted to plead to something and leave. So I practically sat down and wrote what the things that you know I don't have problem with, but of course you have problem with it. With with but you have to to plead to something so to get out, and that's what happened. I consulted with thirteen separate lawyers and said, "What do you think of this? This is yeah, this is fine. It's, you know, you're gonna get out, so you don't want to stay because you're not gonna get out. You know, the government once they they put their sights on you. I mean, this is gonna take you." because you're not citizen. Yeah. So I'm back to the issue of stateless, you see? Right. That's the story of my life. Right. <laughs> you know, that if not, you don't have rights. You know, had I been, you know, I was denied bail, even though the other two defendants who were with me and they were facing the same ch uh, uh, charges, uh, they got bail. I didn't get bail because they were citizens. Mm. So you suffer because you're Palestinian, because you're a refugee, because you are stateless. And that's 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 a story of Palestinians. I hear you. So the the, re the there's a retrial that happens. No, it doesn't happen. So oh, I, uh, we yeah. plead, uh, and and I'm supposed to leave with you know we had a difference whether I should leave in the middle of June as we calculated it, 
They calculated the end of June. All right. So mm. the difference between us were two weeks. So you plead, the, the judge accepts the pleading and everything, and then he changes his mind in the sentence. So when he comes, and it's very interesting, is that the Attorney General of the United States, one day before sentencing, which is supposed to be time served, that's what we agreed with the government on, and the mm. judge didn't say anything. He wasn't bound by it, but he didn't say that I may do it differently. Actually, our original agreement with him was in secret because we were not sure if the government is going to uh, uh, keep its word. So we did everything in camera, meaning in secret. And the judge said, fine. He said, can we do the sentencing next week in secret? He said, fine. And then he changed his mind. One day before sentencing, the Attorney General of the United States comes to Tampa and, 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 uh, for a few hours. No, wh wh why did he come for a few hours? Who did he meet with? Did he meet with the judge? And then the next day, the judge, you know, basically, you have a different judge. You know, he comes with a different ideas. And he sentenced me for another 11 months. Wow. During these 11 months, you have another prosecutor in Virginia who asked me to come and testify in, in a different case, which I knew this was a trap. This was the classical trap that he's done before. He'd done this before with other people. So I refused to testify. So I stayed there another six years, you know, between house arrest. And then after he gave up, uh, he gave, goes with a contempt. Uh, of course, first it was civil contempt. And then he goes for criminal contempt. And then I go before a new judge. Now the new judge sees that there's something wrong here. And she says, you know, we tell her that I already had an agreement. When they came to that agreement, they said, you need to cooperate. I said, there is no cooperation. You want me to cooperate? Go to trial. They said, no, no, no problem. We'll, we'll remove everything about cooperation. So they take it out, which usually very unusual because typically they, they would have that, that you have to cooperate fully for a government. I said, I don't cooperate. I don't talk to them. So they take it out. Then she said, I need to talk to the prosecutors in Florida to see what exactly they understood from this plea agreement. Can you actually call him to testify in another case? They refused to bring the Florida prosecutors. Three times she asked. Three times they denied, but they admit that the Florida prosecutors were against this. So they knew about it. They knew that this is going to happen, but they were against it. Mm. So she says, okay, that's, you're not two different justice departments. We're not two different countries. You can file for dismissal, she asked, tells my lawyer. She gives me bail, So now, but on house arrest. But she doesn't rule. For six years, she doesn't rule. She knows that this is a BS case, but she can't dismiss it because she's afraid or for whatever reason. So they And this is rocket docket. This is Virginia where they don't wait. They just go you know, with cases one after the other. Mm. So she, 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 she sits there. Uh, she, she, she basically sits on the case. So 29, 2009, when she says you can file for dismissal. We file in April. 2010, governor says, when are you going to rule? Soon. 2011, soon. 2012, 13, 14. Then the government gives up. She said, okay, obviously she's not going to uh, uh, rule in the case. So they ask, uh, they ask for dismissal. Then the case is dismissed. Now I'm back to stateless. No place to go. Wow. Because now I left. I, I lost. You know, I was supposed to go to Egypt. Now we have a different government in Egypt. It's not friendly. It doesn't give me visa anymore now i'm again stateless trying to find and some friends approached the turkish government they said okay we'll take him wait so quick question before we talk about turkey so you spent a total of how many months in, in prison while you're waiting between tri trials and whatnot in prison 2020 days five and a half years wow in house arrest also another five and a half years and so this time that you're spending in prison is while you're waiting for trial because no you, you were i'm never in convicted. 27 months let's see from april Sorry, from 
February 2003 until June 2005, so that's 20, what, 27 months or so, mm -hmm. that would be uh, waiting for tire. And then, <laughs> you know, during, during my, right, right before my trial, during my trial and right after, they don't even put me with, with prisoners. They put me in the women's prison. What? In the women's prison. I was the only male in that prison, totally isolated. Because even if you are in solitary, which I was for 43 months, straight months. Wow. Uh, at least you speak through the pipes, you, you know, with other people, you, you shout or something. But yeah. here you don't even have any males because it's not like you are within females because you are in a cell next to you, three cells, all empty. And in the pod, you have 16 cells, all empty. And then you have women guards, which you're fighting with them every day because they don't want to give you any privacy. You know, the bathroom, everything is in the open. So you're fighting with them every single day. And that's another psychological pressure yeah. they're trying to put on you you know they don't put you with another even in isolation with another in the male prisoners because my other co-defendant was in the male prison i was in the female prison wow so you're you're waiting uh that i'm wondering why you were in prison during this time if you were never convicted because i'm not citizen so this because it's yeah. very easy to convince a judge you know because th the way the system is manipulated is that he is a flight risk even though i've been i lived in the u.s 40 years when mm. i was presented i was already there for 28 years i had five children born there i have a wife i have a house i have everything i had a job at least yeah. on paper but didn't matter so they hold you in prison under the guise of he might leave the country i mean they make all kinds of reasons yeah this is uh, you know but and they, it's up to the judge and the judge usually usually do not uh let but you see the virginia judge was different Mm. The judge said, "No, he can go home," but the Florida judge didn't. And I and I think part of it also is the media. Mm. The media was relentless. I mean, when we talk about literally thousands of articles, I mean, I remember uh, there was a survey done, uh, scientific survey about my 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 name at the time of the trial because we were trying to change venue, mm. 2005, and that survey says that I was. Uh, recognized by 97% of the Middle District of Florida. 97%. Only 3% never heard of me. I mean, we had struggle after struggle. I mean, we were trying to get jury. It was very difficult. This, he started with a pool of 500 people. 500 people to start. I mean, usually you start with 30, 40. Here is 500 people in order to get people. And, 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 and even that, I mean, we were struggling to get impartial people. We had very difficult time. I remember some people said I should get the death penalty. Wow. in their answers. Uh, other people sa were saying basically that I, I was guilty and this and that. And some of them actually got into the jury because it was, and we were against that. And uh, there are stories and stories that I can recite about that too. Wow. So the Virginia judge was a little lenient and she let you no, go No, she was fair. She wasn't lenient. Yeah. And she let you go under house arrest? Yes. And how long and was that? And the prosecutor uh, objected to that and he started with these Muslims, they do not respect their female you know, because I was in the custody of my daughter, and that he could flee. And she and my lawyer immediately trying to get up and she said, sit down, and she, and she addressed him, and she, you know, she basically gave him a very hard time for saying these kind of things. So you cannot say these things in my court. Yeah, that's ridiculous. It is, but that's the type of people, you know, we had to face. And uh, the, the, the house arrest was from... Let 
let's see, it was in uh, from 2008 uh, until 2014, about five and a half years. Wow. So then after this this period, it was Ramadan first. Yeah. I remember. It was Ramadan in terms of of Hijra year. It was six years mm. because it was Ramadan first to Ramadan first. Mashallah. Yeah, it was Ramadan first, two thousand eight, because that day that I got out was September, and then until June of two thousand fourteen. Uh, and now I, I you know, I'm, I'm thinking of it now. It was really first of Ramadan when I got out, and it was first of Ramadan when it was dismissed. Mashallah. Yeah. So then you you go and you do this plea agreement. This was back in two thousand six. Yeah. Right, and then we get, you know, and then I'm supposed to serve extra time, but then I'm called to this Virginia case, mm-hmm. and then that takes another six years. Okay, and and then so after the house arrest, what is it that facilitates your looking for asylum? I wasn't because I didn't know what's going to happen. Yeah. But after the case was dismissed, now the US government says you need to. Uh, 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 in, in your plea agreement, you need to find a country. So now we said we need to, to go and find a country. Mm. So I start basically um, writing different countries, mostly in Latin America, because the Arab world, you really don't have a chance to go anywhere. Yeah. Well, wh- wh- what year is this that you're actually... This is 2014, after the case was dismissed. Okay. So sometime in the fall of 2014, I get a call from my immigration attorney said, the U.S. government is asking, what countries have you applied to? So I give them a list of countries. They said, they ask, what other countries in the Middle East? So I start, you know, giving Qatar, and I don't know what else I use. So, and then they said, no, they're asking specifically about Turkey. Mm. Now, it happened that a few weeks before, a friend of mine in a major university saw the president of Turkey at the time, he'd just been elected, and asked him. if they, I didn't know this at the time. Mm. So what happened is that he got really interested in my case. Who? Pre- President of Turkey, President Erdogan. Wow. And he he happened to meet with Joe Biden at the time. He was vice president. And he had the file in his hand, still fresh. And before they had their meeting, th- I was told this after I got here. He pushed that, art, you know, that file to Biden and said, I want this man. So two weeks after that, Biden calls him and said, you can have your Palestinian scholar. That's how he put it. He said that verbatim? That's what they told me. That wow. this is how you can have. And I could see this because once they asked me about Turkey, did you apply for Turkey? And I said, yes, based on the conversation with my friend, the academic. And I see the, the treatment of the U.S. government change 180 degrees. It was, it was mind-boggling. You know, I could see now when you become somebody's interest who's powerful, you know, how, they, how you're being treated differently right. before it's stateless you know, no, not <laughs> nobody. But now you're being treated with respect. So I asked them, okay, you know, I'm, yes, I'm going to Turkey and all that. And they asked that, you know, give him papers. Uh, Turk said, no, we're not going to give him any papers. He's going to go. And when he comes here, and, and it's interesting because when I left, I didn't have even an ID. The, the, the guy from ICE took me my hand all the way through all security checkpoints with nothing to identify me until the captain. And he just said, you can have him. But also, I asked him, I said, can I say goodbye to my friends in Florida? Approved. So I go to Florida one last time. And it's interesting because I saw one of the jurors during mm. that trip. And then I can I go to Chicago, say, you know, goodbye to my friends? Yes. Can I go to New York? Yes. 
you know, so I had like four trips. So, so where were you? Because I thought you were in Florida. No, I was in Washington for the whole uh, TAM. You know, since 2008, I've been in Washington area, oh, okay. Maryland, Virginia. But I was in prisons. I was in 14 different prisons in the U.S. And, and house arrest, you were also in? Yes, yes, okay. I was, I was in, in Virginia. Now, I remember when I went to Florida, this was very interesting. And I gave a sermon also that it was my last sermon in Tampa, in which I said, when I, in the day of my arrest, the FBI agent who arrested me, um, he had me go through the car during Fajr, right before Fajr, on that 56th street, which is, you know, yeah. next to the mosque. And then he said, you see this mosque? You will never see it ever again. And this is how I started my, my sermon. I said, this is what I was told in 2003. Today was 2015. I'm giving this sermon. Mashallah. So whatever they will, it's God's will. Yeah. That will, 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 will take place. So, <coughs> yeah. And, and then I met there one juror. And I could see <laughs> because I had... You know, I was I was communicating with all the jurors at the time by eyes. You know, six months, a long time. Yeah. So everybody was communicating with me except this person. When I look at him, he looks looks away. I mean, he doesn't look at me directly. So I didn't know how to read him. But he came to me two days in my in, in my dream, two days before the jurors took the case, and he told me he whispered in my ears, "You're innocent. You're innocent." So I was keen, and then it turns out, you know, after the verdict that he was on the on the, on the media a couple of times, and he said that he was, he, he, there was no evidence, nothing. There is an interview about that. So I told him what happened, <laughs> you know, because I was trying to communicate to you, and he wouldn't communicate to me, and then or with me, and then I said, uh, uh, you were telling me you're innocent. How did you feel about the case? And then he gave me some nice stories from inside the jury room that confirmed, you know, a lot of things, which now I really respect uh, the jury system. You know, before I was very skeptical, but now I think it should th these cases of guilt and innocence should not be left to judges, should really be left, because these people really have nothing to gain or lose. They just, yeah. you know, especially if they are conscientious people, people who care about uh, justice, right. they will, they will vote whatever they see and and he told me about things and <coughs> he said when he entered <coughs> the jury room uh, there was another juror in which she uh, uh, we didn't know how to read her but she was among the three percent who never heard of the case mm. the very rare but she was very conscientious taking notes throughout and she actually outed during the trial one of the jurors who were extremely biased and we were able to get him out of the jury, the final jury. And he said that immediately they bonded and they told him, how do you feel about the case? He said, I don't think they did anything wrong. What do you think? I don't think they did anything wrong. And he said, from that moment, he said, if you don't break, I will not break. And they started really <coughs> talking to the other jurors and telling, th telling them that there was nothing there. So one of these two ladies who would not deliberate, they will bring information about the case and this lady this young lady was african-american she said no that's not what they said and she had notes that's what the prosecutor said this is not this is not a fact mm. so she kept correcting them until they ran out of arguments and then they stopped to deliberate and said i'm you know he said uh, the first time he saw me he said, i'm very sorry that we couldn't get you out because we tried but these two ladies they were very obstinate they, do, they wouldn't deliberate wow that's wild mashallah so we're we're coming to the to the close here. I just have uh, uh, 
just a couple of questions and then we can we can wrap up inshallah i'm curious and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to but i'm curious if throughout this process you know it's costing you a lot of money you're you're paying a lot for for the lawyers and for your whole legal team and you're also not employed right so how are you continuing like with your living expenses how are you being now or then no not back then during the throughout the trials and things like that well of course i mean you believe that it's you, you god provides i mean it's not like uh, you get it because you're somehow smart even if you are doing well i mean things yeah. could happen to you in which you could be wiped out um no i you know i mean we're strong believers and allah provides and uh, even though you lose everything during this process you have to you know sell whatever you have whatever cash and whatever you know, we had a uh, uh, some real estate property that we had to sell, of course, mm. and, and and use it. And of course, a lot of good people also helped with the with the financial uh, legal uh, uh, um, obligations that we had to do. As I said, uh, the final price was something like 1.3 million, which tells you wow. that uh, justice is not cheap in America. Right. I mean, it's really really costly, but uh, you do your best, and then you leave the rest in the hands of the of the Lord. Yeah. You can't think about these things. Yeah, God provides. You're only the means by which He provides. Mashallah, got it. Okay, um, and then so just coming to the to the story about Turkey and how you were personally requested by the president himself. What happens then? You enter the country. What happens? Well, actually, I come here, and uh, it was very nice because I had people waiting for me at the airport. You know, taken to the VIP, they give you papers, temporary papers, and I didn't even see my luggage. I didn't even see the inside of the airport. And then you know, I had like 14 pieces of luggage. Mm. You go, and then uh, it was nice because we originally booked a hotel, so we uh, we had nice uh, tours. You know, the the baladia, the municipality gives mm. us a driver and car. We go through. We see nice, and then I get uh, situated. I ran a place and and then I you know I sit there and then this university I had uh, a lot of people calling on me to come and I was very reluctant I wasn't sure you know what my next step is so I agreed to come and and teach at this university but not in the field that I was trained I wanted to do basically public affairs yeah so I agree on part-time basis for about a year and then they come back and said now can you on a full-time basis I said I'm not interested to become a just professor on temp I'd like to do the things that I love to do which is basically have a center and research and discussions and conversations and, and conferences and all that mm -hmm. and they said okay present a proposal and we do and, and here we are five years later mashallah yeah and you're actually you're very well secure here I had to have a uh, an escort to get to your office so I was bringing luggage with me they had to they had to stop me and, and and check things out, and then I was brought into your office. So, mashallah, it's a great setup you got going. You got a library down the, down the a few doors down, and you got a nice office here. So, um, any any la last closing thoughts you want to close on? Well, I just want to make sure that people understand, particularly in America, that nothing is handed to you. You really have to struggle for it. And you know, this young generation uh, may thinks that may think that they have. Uh, certain privileges but this could be also a um, um, 
not true. You know, uh, when we talk about living in America as being the, the strongest, the wealthiest country in the world, you should be thankful and grateful for what you have. But yeah. you should also know that uh, there are other people who struggled for the Muslims to take space and were not there mm. yet. And therefore, they have to be very conscientious of the rights and of the obligations that are set for them. Uh, you are at a disadvantage, particularly after what happened after 9-11, in which case you really have to take... First of all, you cannot ignore the realities, and the realities are that Muslims have been targeted by the government. I'm not talking about my case. My case right. is over. But there are hundreds of others in prison today in the U.S., simply because they're Muslims. And to ignore this fact or to act like uh, these people are criminals or they are guilty of anything is just really the, the height of irresponsibility or of at least negligence because a lot of these people are paying price for their faith and associations and for being Muslims living in America. That puts tremendous amount of obligations on Muslims to fight for their rights. The struggle that we went through in the late 90s, early 2000, and we came close to to uh, achieving our aims, uh, except we got into 9-11, it's much worse today. You know, you have people who have been trapped. You have people who were targeted because they were... Uh, feeding children, hungry children throughout the world, particularly in Palestine. You have people who were targeted because of, of what they think and what they wrote and what they said. And you have people who were targeted simply because they were easy praise for FBI sting operations. And you have others who have been made to suffer so that they could be examples for other Muslims not to be activists. And I'd say that you should not be intimidated with these tactics. You should fight for your rights. Yeah. And you should organize and mobilize and work and know that the government right now is not really friendly to you, unfortunately. And regardless of what policies or what they say, whether through different programs, uh, uh, you need to know, for example, somebody like Terry Albury, who's a former FBI agent, who was targeted because he had a conscience at one point, you were targeting Muslims and, and using all these tactics to entrap them, to put them in prison, to, 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 to strangle the community. But, but at one point, he had a, 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 a conscience. At, at one point, he, he had a change of heart. And he's starting warning Muslims and helping and telling the media what is being in store for Muslims. And for that, he was targeted and sent to prison. And he can tell you that many of the things that happened you know, government policies. Uh, there's a problem. There's a problem because they hate Islam and they hate Muslims. Until we come to the point where policymakers and policies start dealing with Muslims as equal citizens, as people that they have dignity and respect, not that they give us this, you know, uh, um, these this kind of, of, of uh, uh, things that... Uh, uh, indicate that somehow they are friends, but in the back they try to uh, uh, entrap us or they try to uh, uh, put our uh, leaders or 
communities or organizations in trouble. So what does that mean? It means that we need to start organizing. People start speaking up. People start to, to work at a level where you become empowered in your own communities and nationally. When you receive respect, when your rights are not trampled upon, that's when you can say, now I could really feel that I'm full citizen. But when you are afraid, looking behind your back, you don't know what's happening, you have people who are targeting you, then obviously you'll never be safe. Regardless if you're personally safe, I'm talking about the community at large. Yeah. There was a study in 2007, the study called Building Moderate Muslim Networks. It was a RAND publication available online and it was written by uh, a historian, an anthropologist, a sociologist, and political scientist, in which they gave a roadmap to the mu- to the government of how to to, to deal with Muslims. That ca- these kind of policies, these kind of of arrangements, are, are very dangerous because now the government is going to pick <coughs> who is moderate, who's not. It's going to tell you which organization is acceptable, which is not. The good Muslim, bad Muslim thing. Yeah. They should not do that. Muslims should be free to choose their own leaders and their and chart their own faith. And anything short of that, that means you're not, you don't have agency, you're not sovereign, you're not independent, you are not fully recognized to have equal rights. And that's what this is what that's what this is about. You know, you should not be targeted because of what you believe in. Now the problem with this study is that when you Define what is a moderate. They put 15 definitions. 90% of the Muslims will not qualify. So they are looking at you as basically radical, extremist, conservative, or whatever other terms they want to associate with it because they want to define what your faith is. They want to define who you are. They want to define your values. And if you do not conform to what they define, then you are not moderate and therefore you become a target. When that changes, that's when you come. Bec- when that's when you become fully a citizen, and fully someone who is respected and who can live with dignity. Right, but that's not indicative of the entire U.S. government, right? That's just a think tank. They published that report. No, Rand uh, publication. Rand does not. Rand is very much tied to the security establishment. You can review it. Mm. They were funded by the U.S. government to come up with a plan, and then you could see their plan. It's not just definition. They said the government w- n- needs to apply the model that was used by the U.S. government between 1958 and 1966, mm. called Congress for Cultural Freedom. Now, the publication itself does not explain what that is. You really have to go and read another book. So you read the book and you said, okay, so what's, what's the big deal? The big deal is the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was established and fully funded and executed, the plan was, 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 was done and executed by the CIA between 58 and 66, meant mm-hmm. that they need to establish institutions, individuals, journals, magazines, syndicates, films, uh, cultural exhibits, you name it. Thousands and thousands of things that happened between these eight years that was fully funded. Of course, this was outside, so yeah. this cannot happen in the inside based on the CIA, it has to be based on something else, like FBI or something, all right, in which they can control what organizations, what individuals, what programs they are 
willing to push and the others they are, are they, 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 they cannot be, be, be pushed or they cannot be uh, accepted so they are going to try to organize your community and tell you who is a good Muslim and this person can go to the White House and this person can go and represent the Muslims and these are bad people so they will be banned from coming to these events that should be left to the Muslim community to decide who represents us who speaks on our behalf what issues are important to us what policies we should pursue not that the government comes and tell you this is okay and this is not okay that's the struggle that's your struggle and if you are going to leave it to the government and leave it to the others who are associated and compromised to define who you are and what you believe and what your associations are and what kind of policies or what kind of thought you should have then you've lost the battle what's the point of living in america if you cannot even think freely if you cannot even associate freely if you cannot say things freely what's the point of living in the u.s right on that powerful note we'll go ahead and close dr sammy thank you so much for your time we'll uh we'll definitely uh take this information and share with uh, share it with others and i'm sure a lot of people will find it beneficial inshallah thank you thank you for this uh, opportunity to speak and you know my greetings to all our friends and brothers and sisters back home Yes, sir. Zakalakhir. Assalamu alaikum.